boy oh boy have I got a good story for you today. This is Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew. I can't believe I hadn't heard of this before now. I learned about this story like maybe a month or so ago, and it's it's a little bit bonkers. And I've never heard of this guy before, so maybe you haven't either. Now, today's story, for the most part, does not take place in Kentucky, full disclosure, but it is the story of a man born in Kentucky, a Kentuckian. Now, by the end of this, you let me know if you think we should claim him or just let people keep thinking he was from Ohio. (laughs) This is the story of Ben Purnell and the House of David. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Benjamin Franklin Purnell was born on March 27, 1861, in Foxport, Kentucky. Foxport is up in Fleming County, it's northeast, sort of near Maysville. His parents were Madison Purnell and Sarah Ross, but he was mostly raised by his brother and sister-in-law. And the family didn't have a lot of money, so they didn't have a lot of stuff. They only had one book, and as you can imagine, a kid growing up poor in the 1860s, what was that one book? The Bible. And boy, he knew that thing like the back of his hand. Loved it. And Purnell's brother was a preacher. He was the type that would give fire and brimstone sermons. And by the time Ben Purnell was 16, he was like, yeah, I think this is my calling too. I'm going to be a traveling preacher. This wasn't out of the ordinary in the United States at this time, especially the Midwest. You start to see the faith healing. You start to see these big revivals. I'm going to talk about uh, the Cane Ridge Revival in a future episode. If you haven't heard about that one, it's it's super interesting. But yeah, Ben Purnell kind of gets swept up in this whole scene. And he'd also learned about this one woman in particular Uh, She had died before he was born, and I think she was maybe Scottish. Um, She really deserves her own podcast episode on another show. She's fascinating. But this woman, Joanna Southcott, she was a self-proclaimed prophetess. She had dubbed herself the celestial woman of the apocalypse spoken of in Revelations. She uh, sold paper seals of the Lord to guarantee people's places in heaven. Okay, so she was selling heaven to people. And apparently no one questioned her. They just went right along with whatever she said. And Purnell kind of observed that. And he liked the way she was able to harness that power and gain such influence over people to the point where they just didn't even question her. He also liked her beliefs. Um, A big thing for him was that idea of 144,000 people going to heaven. I always have to give a disclosure in these episodes. Why do I feel like I always end up talking about religion? I don't know anything about religion, so I'm very self-conscious when I have to talk about it. 
But I think the 144,000 people thing is pretty common in several religions. So they kind of pulled from Christianity and, and other religions. And the other idea they had was that there would be seven messengers of Christ. And Joanna was one of them. And then Ben would be the seventh messenger. Okay. Now, a little caveat on the 144,000 people thing. In some places, it says they believed there would be 144,000 chosen to get into heaven. But then I also saw these are the people who survived the apocalypse and then live a thousand good years. So, I don't know. Um, let's move on. <laughs> so, like I said, Ben Purnell, soon to be known as King Ben, did believe he was the seventh messenger. I should interject here that somewhere in this timeline there is a first wife. Uh, her name was Angeline Brown. She was from Morgan County, Kentucky, which is a little ways south of Foxport, where he's from. So I don't know for sure that he met her while he was preaching and traveling, but I would guess that's how they met. Because it's also how he met his second wife, Mary Stollard. Uh, Mary was actually born in Scott County, Virginia, which is in the very eastern tip of Virginia, close to the Kentucky border. <laughs> the problem with this second wife was that he hadn't mentioned to her, to Mary, that he was already married to Angeline. Oops. Uh, didn't matter, though. I, I don't know if they eventually talked about it or what, but Mary was also super into the Bible, and so they just clicked and they started traveling together, preaching, spreading the word, and so they're together. They're this unit. They get married in 1880. They have two children, a son and a daughter. Now, what I saw on Ancestry is that they actually had Sarah Jane, the daughter, two years before they got married, so that must have been very scandalous back then. And then they had their son, um, Coy Samuel, in 1881. By the early 1900s, Mary and Ben had relocated to Fostoria, Ohio, which is pretty far up. It's near Toledo. And this is when they decided to take things to the next level. They write a book. It's called The Star of Bethlehem, The Living Role of Life, The Word of God. You can get it on Amazon for $26. And the book uh, talks about how the couple received a visitation, which meant that, yes, everyone, we are the seventh messengers. So they do pretty well in Fostoria. He's preaching on street corners at first, but he starts drawing crowds of hundreds of people. People like what he's saying. And so by 1902, he's actually in a church, and he's officially started the Israelite House of David. later, in 1903, Ben's preaching, and all of a sudden the congregation hears this explosive noise, and it's coming from a fireworks factory that had caught fire, which is a really bad situation. Now, the really tragic thing about this is that their daughter was working in the factory, and she died in the fire. 
And this is where we get the first real sign of these people being a little unusual. And I'm putting that very nicely. So the Purnells believed that only the sinful died, right? He and his family didn't sin. And they were part of that chosen 144,000 people. They were not supposed to die. The fact that her, his daughter died in that fire meant that she had sinned. So they didn't claim her remains. They basically said, you know what, she's not our family. We want nothing to do with that sinner. So not long after their daughter's death, they move again. They keep moving further north. This time, they end up in Benton Harbor, Michigan, which sits right on Lake Michigan. And if you're curious, Benton Harbor has a very interesting history aside from what I'm about to tell you about, so you should look into it. Okay, so it's still 1903 when they get there, and they've brought some followers from Ohio along with them. I guess the Purnells think that the sixth messenger and more of their students are already there. And why Benton Harbor, I don't know, other than I think they knew that there was some money there. Because when they get there, they meet up with these two brothers who have <laughs> plenty of money. And apparently these brothers are there studying with the sixth messenger. And the sixth messenger meets Ben Purnell and is like, oh yeah, you're, you're definitely the guy. You're, you're the seventh messenger. Let's do this. So they give him... They give Ben Purnell $400,000. The inflation calculator says this would be between $12 and $13 million today. So the Purnells have hit the jackpot with these new friends. So they start by buying up 250 acres in the area. This is you know, potentially for the chosen 144,000 people to all gather. This is the future for the House of David. It's all coming together. Ben starts taking these trips to recruit people, uh, to recruit, you know, people who are going to live this eternal, happy life with them in Michigan. He goes all the way to Australia. He brings back over 80 Australian people. Uh, this is in 1905. On to red flag number two, uh, the first one being when they didn't claim their daughter. They tell all the newcomers that they'll have to give up all their personal possessions and give the Purnells all their money. That's part of the deal when you join up. You have to hand over everything, all your valuables. Um, some other rules, no meat, you have to be a vegetarian. No alcohol or tobacco, because we're just all about purity. And this one's very important. No sex. Even for married couples. Married couples are instructed to treat each other like brother and sister. They, This commune comes to have their own political processes and elected officials. And women are allowed to participate. They could vote. Mind you, this is like 15 years before women are given the right to vote in the entire U.S. So in that one little way, they're a little bit progressive. Men were not allowed to shave or cut their hair. And <laughs> the, 
This was because they think that they can absorb electricity from the air with their hair. This long hair causes some problems in town with these men trying to get hired. You know, because long hair and long facial hair, that was not the style back in the early 1900s. So the locals are looking at these guys like, who who are you? We're we're not going to hire you. This was uh, specifically a problem with uh, one streetcar company. A lot of the men from the commune tried to get hired on at the streetcar company, and they were all refused. So Ben Purnell goes and buys a majority stake in the streetcar company and says, okay, now you're all hired. Problem solved. The Purnells at this point seem to be doing very well financially between the gift from the brothers and taking all the money and possessions of their members. They're doing great. They're living in a mansion that I'll post pictures of. It's called the Diamond House Mansion. Uh, There are plenty of websites where you can pull up the changes over time, like before repairs, after, all that good stuff. Now this first mansion is 9,000 square feet. Pretty big structure. Fascinating place. I would call it attractive, I think. But it has all these hidden passageways in the walls and like hidden rooms and things. So it's it's kind of a mysterious place, really. And I should note that at some point, I believe they also built a 32,000-square-foot mansion, a 102-room mansion on the property. But remember, just back at the beginning, they've got these 250 acres to fill up. They bought all this land. So what else? Well, at one time, there was a zoo, which I think is just hilarious. They're not supposed to have sex, so they're not going to have kids running around. They just have this zoo for adults. They have a restaurant, a nightclub, a hotel, an electricity plant, and an amusement park. And you'll notice that some of the things that they do, they're working so hard towards self-sufficiency. That's really a big element of all of this. Now, um, I did say amusement park. That opened in 1908. It was called Eden Springs. And um, (laughs) so funny. From 1954 to 1974, they do Western-themed pony rides in this park. You can watch a video of it. They host rock, jazz, and swing bands at the park. Uh, There's a Blood, Sweat, and Tears flyer from their show at the House of David Park. They had a train, the world's largest miniature railroad. They had an oval racetrack for car racing. Uh, There were two bowling alleys. It's just a happening place. Quick note on that train. Ben Purnell had his own special train car, and it had blacked out windows. Apparently, Al Capone once joined him for a ride around the park in his train car with blacked out windows take from that what you will (laughs) but this place gets so big it gets it gets so big they start building their own ships to bring in tourists or guests from other bigger cities like chicago you know people hear about this commune and they're going what the heck is this now by 1932 
They've got over 100,000 acres of land, and they're farming like crazy. They actually developed the world's largest cold storage facility, and this is to stabilize the price of produce. They start a huge fruit market. They buy an island on Lake Michigan for logging. They dip their toes into so many different industries, and they, like I said, they work so hard to be self-sufficient. And then, because all these people are working super hard and dedicating their lives to the house of David, and they're not having any sex, Ben's like, you know what you guys need? You all need a hobby. Let's play baseball. This turns into a pretty big deal. A baseball field was built on the property early on, like 1910 or so. This stadium can seat 3,500 people. And between the mid-1900s and 1950, the House of David baseball teams went on the road and played nearly 200 games a season. Some of these games would draw crowds of thousands. I mean, they're semi-pro, they're serious. Interestingly, most of the players on these teams aren't American. They're the people who'd been recruited from other countries. They were mostly German, English, and Australian. Now, this isn't just baseball for the sake of baseball. No, there's an ulterior motive. These games are great recruiting opportunities. So when they go to a new place, the members walk around and hand out pamphlets about the House of David. ABC, always be closing. In 1916, the House of David has about a thousand members, and that's kind of its peak. And when you read about all these things they have a hand in, and all this stuff they're getting done, that number is a little surprising to me. For some reason, I thought it would be higher. But no, really at its peak, it was about a thousand members. I think part of the reason it didn't grow more than that is because as early as 1907, there are some bumps in the road. Some people don't want to give up all their stuff. They start asking for their stuff back. Or they don't want to work for free anymore. And so they start filing lawsuits. So, in 1908, the House of David reorganizes into a voluntary religious association. And the Purnells hold everyone's property and money in a trust for the members. Uh, here's a quote about that. Quote, because of, because of such non-religious activities, the IHOD drew the attention of the Michigan Attorney General, who in 1907 determined it was holding and using real estate in excess of its charter. It's a tale as old as time, isn't it? So they reorganize, but not all their problems are solved because two years later, some women from the group go to federal officials to report that Ben Purnell's been acting strange with the young girls that are around. He's been asking young girls to dance for him. And he's also been sleeping in the girls' tents. And when I say girls, I mean girls, underage. Fast forward a decade, early 1920s, over a dozen girls tell authorities that they had sex with Ben Purnell, 
who preached celibacy for everyone. He was the king of celibacy. But he'd had sex with all these girls, according to them, and each of them is underage. But they have been told that they needed to have sex with Ben Purnell because it's a part of their salvation. God wants them to do this. So he's starting to uh, get in some hot water, you know. And in 1923, Ben Purnell goes missing. Yeah, he goes missing. He falls off the map for almost four years. Now, investigators do find him by the end of 1926, and... They don't find him in some remote town thousands of miles away. He's been hiding in the commune, in a hidden part of the mansion. He's reportedly emaciated when they find him, and he's just being taken care of by women in nightgowns hiding out in this little space in the mansion. He's arrested on immorality charges. The case goes to trial, And there are 300 witnesses and 15,000 pages of documents related to this case. I mean, it is a doozy. In 1927, the Chicago Tribune reports that it came out in trial that 40, 40, 40 girls had been forced to live in close quarters with Ben Purnell, and they'd been forced to be intimate with Ben Purnell, and they'd been sworn to secrecy, of course. Ben Purnell denies these allegations and is never prosecuted for them, because in December of that same year, Ben dies of tuberculosis. He also had diabetes, asthma, and a leaky heart, so... All that clean living didn't really seem to pay off. He was 66 years old when he died. And then the commune splits into two factions. And there was actually a lawsuit, but they ended up settling out of court in 1930. The original Israelite House of David would be led by former Judge H.T. DeWurst, who took over pretty much right after Purnell died, from what I understand. And then whoever didn't stay there joined Mary Purnell. So Mary leaves, although she doesn't go far. She pretty much sets up shop right next door, uh, her own colony, Mary's City of David. And she actually lives until 1953. She lives to be 91 years old. And I can't help but wonder how much she knew about what her husband was doing with those young girls. And I wonder if she ever questioned you know, their practices of taking everyone's possessions. I'm very curious to know. But the people that stayed with Mary pretty much did so because of that fundamental belief that she and her husband were the seventh messengers. And I just, I don't understand this because he died and he wasn't supposed to die. He was supposed to be one of the 144,000 that survived the apocalypse and lived a thousand years. So... I don't know. But even though these groups had split up, uh, they did continue kind of running things together. So it couldn't have been, you know, that contentious. All the parks and clubs and businesses they had, there's still a joint effort. Unfortunately, the Eden Springs Amusement Park officially closed in 1975. And in 2017, the Chicago Tribune reported that 
both the original and Mary's commune were down to just a few members each. A few more notes here. Uh, one thing I want to mention is that I'm a little fuzzy on the details of the Purnell's children. On Ancestry.com it says they had three kids. They had a boy named Coy, and then a daughter, Sarah, and a daughter, Hetty. Hetty was born in 1887 and died in 1903, although maybe those dates are wrong. But it says that Sarah lived until 1953, so I'm not clear on which daughter died in that fire, because Hetty wouldn't have been old enough to work, unless they had her working. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess she would be, but just barely. So that's probably what it is. But there was another daughter. Now, the other thing, uh, the judge who took over the one faction after Purnell died, he lived until 1947, and he continued as leader until his death. So for like 20 more years. And before taking over the House of David, he'd actually been a judge on the California Supreme Court, which I, I find that really interesting too. And you can check out the website for Mary's City of David. It's just maryscityofdavid.org. And it's kind of interesting if you go to the answers tab, they talk about the lawsuits against the Purnells and they try to justify everything kind of. And they also talk about how the lawsuits had already been prophesied, or is it prophesized, by the Purnells in some of their earlier writing, of course. So now let me read you a couple of highlights that they have here about their history. Okay, so from their website... We provided a Jewish summer haven, parentheses, resort, for 35 years within our Christian community from 1930 to 1965. A 1929 Michigan State Supreme Court ruling in favor of the House of David reaffirmed freedom of religious practice and expression in America. Jackie Mitchell, professional baseball's first female, pitched for us in 1933 and was our starting pitcher in our victory over the St. Louis Cardinals in September of that year. Our hospital, for its short history, boasted of having the leading surgical theater in America, 1838 to 1839. I, I would love to know more details about that one. They, uh, they had a hospital and actually did surgery at that hospital, and it lasted a, a year. <laughs> it doesn't bode well. Produce from our numerous agricultural properties made the open-air market in Benton Harbor the largest in the world during the 1940s and 50s. And finally, our final basketball tour of 1954 was an exhibition series throughout Europe against the Harlem Globetrotters. I just find that all very interesting. And then, uh, I know I keep saying last thing, but there's just so much. So... In more recent news, the Detroit Tribune wrote a 2018 article called Feud Over Fortune Embroils Michigan Religious Group. Quote, an excommunicated member of a century-old West Michigan religious group is alleging a few interlopers have conspired to loot more than 50,000 
sorry, 50 million in assets from the organization. <laughs> Why do these people have $50 million to be fighting over in the first place? They have like two members left. It has turned into the most bizarre ending. I'm not going to go into the details, but you can find the article. Clearly, they're still in legal trouble all these years later. Um, as of that 2018 article, there was a single member of the commune or of the religion living in the 32,000 square foot mansion. One person, 32,000 square foot mansion. And historians and just people who have studied this group, they're fascinated by the fact that the commune basically killed themselves off. There are no members left because you weren't allowed to have sex and you were supposed to live forever. So they didn't have kids, but then they all got old and died. So there's just no one left. There's another website, uh, it's m.israelitehouseofdavid.com. It's got more information on the amusement park and there are great photos and there's more information about the baseball teams and the trains. And the amusement park space was apparently bought by a group of train enthusiasts. So my understanding is that they're kind of reviving all the train tracks and like restoring the authenticity of all that, which I do think is pretty cool. And you know, this would be an okay story. I mean, it would be a fun story if Ben Purnell hadn't been swindling people, stealing all their money, and sleeping with underage girls. Everything else actually sounds kind of nice. But yeah, Ben Purnell of Fox, what did I say? Foxport, Kentucky? Let me know what you think. Let me know if you've heard about this before now, because I had not. And uh, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you haven't already. I don't hit you all up for money very often, so just support me in that way. It's the free way. Just leave a review. Okay, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, take care, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.